first and foremost, feed the people. Food is a fundamental human right. So we need to make sure that we're feeding the people. COVID really brought out and still continues to bring out the disparities in the system. One of the best defenses against this virus is to be healthy, to eat healthy and keep your immune system strong, which is what local fruits and vegetables are all about. It's clear that farmers are more important perhaps than ever. It is it's clear we have to invest into the next generation of farmers, ranchers, and foragers. We talk about it, and you know what? It just comes down to we have to let people know you can farm like this. I really think it has to be shown. You have to be able to see it before you're able to believe that it can happen. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Spark Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. COVID-19's effects on our communities are statewide, systemic, and extend far beyond healthcare or jobs. In fact, COVID-19 is exposing and exacerbating the challenges our communities face when it comes to food. The running joke may have been about toilet paper early on in the pandemic, but places like Ajo and the Navajo Nation literally faced empty store shelves and no food for days and weeks. It should never be this way which is why the women you're about to meet have been working for years to build stronger local food systems across Arizona, and why they're working even harder at the moment. Our three guests today are passionate individuals who spend as much time on the land itself as they do pushing for policies, systems, and environmental changes that are crucial to ensuring equitable, local access to healthy, affordable foods. Last week, we promised you an important episode with plenty to chew on. Well, get ready, because we've got it right here. It's time to talk about food systems, by talking to a few of Arizona's food heroes as we continue to respond and adapt to life with COVID-19. Today we have three fabulous people here to talk to us about Arizona's food systems. I'm going to start with Adrian Udarby from Pinnacle Prevention. Adrian, how are you? Doing great. Good. Thank you for being here. And Nina Sayavets from the Ajo Center for Sustainable Agriculture. Nina, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And from all the way up in the Navajo Nation, Sherilyn Yazzie from Coffee Pot Farm. Sherilyn, how are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for asking. Thank you so much for being here. So here's the deal. Almost everybody who's listening to this podcast has no idea that they should be thinking about anything besides food, except I go to the grocery store and it's there. And yet all three of you are working diligently on this thing called a food system. Adrian, what is it and why do you have to work so hard on it? Yeah, I think there is a huge disconnect over the years between all of the different players and elements that are part and make up our food system. The food system itself is not just grocery and where you pick up your food, but it's all the many layers in between. So it's from our farmers who grow and harvest our food to those who may even process it or package it to how it gets distributed, to how it gets to the consumers, to us, to our plate and then what we do with our food waste afterwards and what that ends up looking like as well, too. So there's so many different players and elements that all feed into our food system as we see it today. And Adrian, you're working on this statewide. That's right. Meanwhile, Nina, you're down in Ajo and you are super darn focused on southern Arizona. Correct. We're Ajo Center for Sustainable Agriculture and we are a community-based organization we focus on Ajo, Arizona, of course, and then also on the on Autumn Nation, as the majority of our board members are Native American and come from those communities. We also organize the statewide Arizona Agricultural Training Network that is being born out of collaboration and initiative. We started under the Vitalist Innovation Grant. We were awarded in 2019. So we are reaching out to other farmers under this network, other farmers, ranchers, foragers, gatherers, and trying to connect statewide in order to address some of the issues that we're all sharing. And Nina, if you had to guess, approximately how many miles are you currently away from Sherilyn right now? I would say about 600 miles so far. And yet, you're both working very closely together on issues Correct. related to agriculture and farming. Correct. We definitely from down here admire what Sherilyn and her husband and her group are doing up on the Navajo reservation. Even though the distances are huge, working in a small rural and on top of a tribal community, they're a very 
several similarities. And on the other hand, we're all facing the same issues as farmers. How do we grow our food in the conditions we have and with the limitations we have, which, you know, are very different in rural and tribal Arizona than they are in Phoenix or Tucson. So how do we grow our food? How do we then get our food to the customers? And how do we hopefully make a living in the process for ourselves as well as other people we work with? Sherilyn, you are no stranger to the intersection of health and food. Tell us a little bit about your backstory and what led you back to Navajo Nation to start Coffee Pot Farms. When I started and I was young, I just wanted to help people. But then I moved into public health arena and I knew that you have to be healthy in order to be able to have a good mind, to be healthy, to have a good spirit. And so that was the reason I got into nutrition and trying to educate young people about how to live a healthy lifestyle. And so I did that with public health for about 13 years and did a lot of nutrition prevention programs. In doing that, I did love my work. I did love working with kids in schools. So we did that in Navajo and Apache County. But a lot of the work that I did back on Navajo Nation, it was hard because you're telling a student, get this kind of food, you know, look at the pyramid. And or when we changed over to my plate, look at the plate and try to have this many vegetables. And that was hard because a lot of the kids didn't have access to that kind of produce. Only about 13 grocery stores on Navajo Nation. It just became where I was just so frustrated with the idea of it. And so I decided to leave public health and really start thinking about where would food come from? How would that look like on Navajo Nation? And so I decided to start growing food for ourselves. And so what I'm learning at this point is that it is hard. There are many challenges, but it can be done. And there are many ranchers and farmers and sheep herders on Navajo. And we used to know how to do this. And I feel like it is in our DNA. We do know how to do this. But I think a lot of the systems that are in play for us on Navajo are tribal policies and then the federal policies. Some of those are difficult to navigate. I think moving forward, I want to be able to figure out how is it going to help us to tap into water? Because that's going to be the hugest issue for us on Navajo is that in order to make sure we have the food that we need, the amount that we need, we need to have that access to water. Nina, similar to Sherilyn, your story is very unique as well and how you got into this work and why you do it. I'm not from around here. Um, I was born and raised... Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, this is an an awful accent, correct? (laughs) (laughs) I was born and raised in Slovenia, which is a small country on the top of the Adriatic Sea, squeezed between Italy, Austria, and Croatia, and uh, was a part of ex-Yugoslavia. I finished my law degree there and was doing research in legal anthropology and environmental anthropology and did my master's in cultural anthropology and did my field work here in Ajo, Arizona and returned to do field work for my PhD. And in the process, basically, it started with working at the Ajo Food Bank and realizing so clearly, being a newcomer and understanding how food functions and how this community functions understanding so clearly that people who were in line at the food bank were people whose English might have been worse than mine, people of Hispanic origin as well as Native American origin. And the flip side of that was recognizing that what was given out at the food bank was not the food that I recognized as food, so not something that's nutritious and healing and well-rounded, and it comes from a very far place away, oftentimes not even clear where it comes from, and understanding that, on the other hand, if you were not a starving PhD student but had money and access to a vehicle and time to go shop in Tucson and Phoenix, that good, fresh food was available, locally grown, organic, all of that was available, but only those who have privilege and money. That was my insight into the whole food system 11 years ago and started to realize the uniqueness of this border community 
And then I had the privilege of working on the Dawn Autumn Reservation for years for Dawn Autumn Community Action, where I developed the beginning corner programs, as well as community gardening programs, school garden programs, and farm to school programs, and worked on the farm to school programs. In the process, learning about the amazing practices that have existed here for thousands of years. That's how people have survived in Southern Arizona. They live in, I hate to say it, but in in partnership with the land. I hate to say it because this term is so often misused and abused, but understanding the land, understanding the water, which Sherilyn pointed out is the crucial issue for growing or harvesting food in Arizona, Understanding also how food functions in a community is a connecting factor. It's something that brings us together and allows us to be really human. It's almost as if we take our masks off when we share a bread or, in this case, a tortilla, a chimis. Understanding all of those things and how vital food is, on the other hand, for the communities, like Native American communities where obesity and diabetes are just rampant, and understanding how food justice functions in the system, in the structural injustice system, system that is set up so that if you are born and raised on the reservation, your chances are you will get diabetes are much higher than as if you're born and raised in Phoenix. Ever since then, and connecting with all the people in the process, I am still here. That's 11 years later. I'm privileged to work with many Native and non-Native people. And as I keep on saying, food does bring us together. And thinking about food systems and all the partnerships, all the networks, all the personal relationships that happen around it, I think it's important to recognize that food is something we all have in common. And in this very stressful times, understanding we are all human. Adrian, Nina brought it up, and it never struck me until now that the one thing the three of you deeply have in common is each one of you saw injustice in the food system, and all three of you made dramatic turns in your life to address it. Yeah. Pinnacle Prevention was started almost seven years ago, actually. And myself and many of our colleagues come from backgrounds in public health. And through those roles and through that lens of public health, we were able to see that you can only do so much education. You still hit a wall in terms of structural policies, barriers in general, accessibility that limit individuals' ability to truly be able to access good quality foods and live a healthy lifestyle. And so Upon leaving public health, Pinnacle Prevention was really founded on addressing these gaps that we identified, but really tackling things from this policy lens to say, okay, these are the policies that are in place that are creating barriers. They're either helping or they're harming the situation. And so really focusing on those. Um, And from a statewide scale, and also seeing that there was a gap here in Arizona of having somebody be that connection piece from that statewide scale to be able to say, okay, here's these different players. How do we all come together to leverage our strength and our knowledge and our expertise to make a bigger impact? Okay. Each of you have been at this for years now. Each of you literally changed your lives in order to work in food. If I were to ask each of you individually, we're going to start with Sherilyn, what are the top three things you want to see change in the food systems world? What would it be and why? Well, I'm going to still bring up water. (laughs) We have to have access to water on Navajo. I think that's the only way that would allow us to grow as much food as we needed to. And that would help us to I think keep our food local, you know, we'll be able to provide for our communities. So it'd be getting water. The second one is, you know, having some kind of policy that will allow for there to be some type of incentive or some type of resource just for the farmers and ranchers on Navajo. I've talked to a lot of farmers as I started doing this work, and they want to grow food. Everybody does want to grow food. They remember a lot of the history behind why they do it. There's just something in our tribal system that it's not showing itself that saying, okay, this is the route you're going to go. So I would like to explore that a little bit more and kind of have a better understanding of it. And then the other one would be, I really would like people to communicate and talk to one another. 
I know on Navajo, there's sometimes a lot of miscommunication and people are not maybe wanting to listen to one another. They want to do things their own way, but I think it's really important for us to communicate and come to an understanding that way it allows us to move forward and we have a game plan or strategy that will help us to overcome a lot of challenges. Okay, Adrian, you're going to be next. But before that, I need people who are listening to this podcast to understand what exactly Sherilyn means by water and literally the experience, because I've had the privilege of being on Coffee Pot Farms property. Mm -hmm. And I have also seen the truck and the trailer and the water tank and the understanding that Sherilyn, it takes all day to get enough water just to run the farm for a week. Is that about right? That's about right. <laughs> and then in the summertime, which, you know, we're headed into the summer, it could be more because we want to be able to grow more and the plants are thirsty. And so that's what's happening is we're hauling water or Mike is hauling water almost every week. Which you could be getting from, a, if I understand, a water source maybe a mile away and or by actually just drilling a well. Yes, we want to be able to drill a well. Which systems that, and governance does not permit you to do that at this point, right? Not at this point, because if your land or the land that you're on is not leased in your name, then you have to go through that process to withdraw that land and then have it have somebody come and find the water. So you'll have to go out and search for a hydrologist, geologist. And, and a lot of it, too, is where we're at in Delcon. My understanding is that our water is going to be about 500 to 600 feet down. Hmm. So then you talk about the funding that it's going to take to make sure that you can drill that well and you have enough power to pump it out. That's how I'm understanding this as we're going through that process. It's astounding to think about that much of a challenge just to get water. Thank you for sharing that. Adrian. Mm -hmm. your three things. I would say land accessibility, affordability, and economic viability. And from one perspective, the land piece, I feel very worried about the amount of ag land that we originally had here in Arizona, which this state was founded on, so to speak, which has now been displaced by development. And there doesn't seem to be very many local policies in place that are mitigating that. And new incoming farmers that are coming into the field really struggle to be able to get access to that land that also has the water source as well, too, which is really important. From the affordability side, I think it also goes hand in hand with the economic viability is we need to pay our farmers for the amount of time and effort and quality and love that they put in to grow our food. But unfortunately, we don't price it in a way that makes it something that they can sustain long term where there's economic viability to it. And because of that, then you're able to get less healthy food for really cheap. And so we want to reverse that and we want to at least level the playing field. So our fruits and veggies are the good quality foods that folks should be able to get at an affordable cost. But at the same time, we also want to make sure that our farmers are getting paid what it's worth and being able to keep a roof over their head and maintain it and have a family as well, too. So all those three factors are top of my mind and keep me up at night. And those three things range from local municipal policy all the way to federal policy. Absolutely. And to tribal policy as tri well, yep. as Sherilyn just explained as well. So there's so many different factors that come into play there that influence our ability to overcome these barriers and not have to jump through so many hoops just to get our fruits and veggies. Nina, you got from Slovenia to Ajo because you wanted to change the world. What are your top three things? I don't think I want to change the world as much as I'm letting the world change me. And in the process, if I can do anything, I will. And my top three things are, well, we were talking about policy change. And one of the first things I would like to bring to the forefront is I will continue to speak for the farmers, ranchers, cooks, everybody in the food production and food distribution industry. I do believe people are not aware of the roles these people play. I do believe people, if they understood more where their food comes from or who are the people behind, you know, even your fast food burger or, you know, farmer's market, burro, 
that people would start cherishing and understanding this much better. And that would change the way they act in a local food system or in a food system. So one of the things we're doing, you know, the ladies mentioned policy changes. I do think it starts also with the state of Arizona, recognizing that training the new generation of farmers, ranchers and foragers is crucial. It is important. And it should be one of the workforce development, official workforce development programs that are offered in this state. So going back to, you know, the value of farmers and other people in the food system is number one. For me, the number two would be sustainable agricultural methods, both traditional methods. You know, Charlene spoke to them and there's much more. It comes to the choices of crops, the choices of how you farm and when you farm and what you eat. So, for example, Arizona can produce ample pomegranates, and perhaps we should be thinking about enjoying pomegranates with our morning cereal versus strawberries, which do not do so well, especially in southern Arizona. So promoting sustainable practices, since we are dealing with very sensitive resources such as water, soil, etc., The big thing for me is, and this really came to light also in the COVID-19 crisis, is good food should be available to all. It shouldn't be based on your income. It shouldn't be based on the color of your skin or the language you speak. It should be at least the basic good food should be available to everyone. So we have to think about what emergency food systems there are in place. How is that food distributed? How does it get to people? And how can people take it in as well as connecting it back to local farmers, ranchers and foragers? You see how Nina is clearly in charge of all the transitions in this particular (laughs) podcast? I love it. So Nina, let's talk about COVID-19. Let's talk about race. Let's talk about injustice. How did it play out as the pandemic came through Southern Arizona? What were your struggles? What were your challenges? And where are we going from here? So Ajo is a very, very remote community. We're about two hours south of Phoenix and two and a half hours west of Tucson. And there's not much in between except the Dawn Autumn Reservation, which is the size of Connecticut, and it has very dispersed little communities. So if you're in Ajo and your local store doesn't carry the goods, or if you're in, let's say, the community of Gaga on the reservation, it will take you an hour and a half to get to the first store or an hour 45 to get to the first next store. So imagine in a situation like that, so very remote, very food insecure, plus all of these are very poor communities. So when the COVID-19 hit, the reservation and Ajo, the stores here got emptied out. And unfortunately, a lot of people came from elsewhere to buy not just toilet paper, but also food supplies. So there were several days and even weeks when there were nothing on the shelves. And again, we do not have a choice. We cannot go down the block or even drive 10 miles and go to another store. There's no other choice here. So we have on one side, we saw the store sampling. On the other side, we saw the existing emergency food system, both for Ajo and on the reservation, was not able to respond to the demand that happened. On top of that, people started losing jobs because businesses started closing. The Dawn Autumn Nation, which is a big employer, also started closing and people started losing income. So in all of that, you know, as farmers, people started asking us already in March, do we have fresh produce we could give them? Because one of the best defenses against this virus is to be healthy, to eat healthy and keep your immune system strong, which is what local fruits and vegetables are all about, and as well as traditional legumes and the grains. So we started giving out three boxes in March and demand kept on increasing. So we started reaching out to other partners in the community and forming a partnership and started looking for resources. We utilized the restaurant supply chain, which, you know, pivoted hard to start helping us. And we connected with local farmers we've been working with before here in Napa on the Don Autumn Reservation, the gleaners in Tucson and farmers in the Phoenix area, including Ramona Farms, and started aggregating a lot of food coming in here. And the first week of the COVID-19 food relief program, we assembled 400 boxes, but the demand was so huge that the following week, or the weeks after, 
We're now assembling about 1,300 boxes every week, working with seven districts of the Dawn Autumn Nation, especially the Western districts, which I mentioned are very, very far away from other sources as well. And making sure that this food goes to the members of the community who need it. As I mentioned earlier, the majority of our board members are Native and uh, Autumn. So they have taken, several of them have taken on distributing food to the communities and community members. Then the districts come out to Ajo. We package, aggregate and repackage all of this food in the Ajo Farmers Market and Cafe which is a licensed commercial kitchen and it was set up as a multi-business food incubator. So we have some cold and dry storage space so that we can aggregate all this food. So the districts come to us, pick up the food in the district vehicles and take it back to the community members. So the number of people involved in packaging this food and distributing this food, we're well over 100, and this effort will continue as long as there is a need. Literally shaking my head at how much work is going on and how much you guys are doing. And Sherilyn, no exception for you either. Navajo Nation, the hardest hit for COVID-19, and you guys have been doing tremendous work as well. Tell us more about that. So Coffee Pot Farms, when COVID-19 hit, you know, we wanted to do something. We felt there was a need that we have to provide something. We're a farm. We have food. What do we have? So we had our chickens and they have eggs. And so we started a small 18-week egg share program. So we're delivering eggs every week. The girls are doing good. And we did also have kale and we have lettuce. So, you know, with some of those things, you can make omelets, you can even do a chef salad with it. So that's a little bit of what we've been doing. And each week, if, you know, if we have some produce that's ready to go, we kind of shift it and make a food box. And it usually ranges from $10 to $15. And we're actually doing a local delivery with it so if people are interested they go online and through social media or they can call or through word of mouth they let us know we'd like to have food box what do you have available and we put something together and then we go out and deliver it and everything we try to do them online through paypal and so it's been working out it's been challenged for even ourselves to figure out the logistics of how all of that works. So for Coffee Pot Farms, this was going to be our official first year in growing our food in a market style. So, you know, with a crop plan, we were making sure that we would have food growing consistently. And we have a team of farmers. We call ourselves the Navajo Green Team. And we were planning to start a farmer's market in the Winderlock area. And then when COVID-19 hit, We had to pivot and change how we're going to get our food out. And so we're planning to move to an online store. However, there's other groups in our area that are doing fundraising and they're also providing food boxes. So we have people like in Cameron, we have the Navajo Hopi COVID relief. There's one up in Utah, in Shiprock area. And so a lot of these groups are going to donations and delivering and purchasing food again off the res to bring it on the res and one of the groups there the relief fund is wanting to partner and work with local farmers and so we were able to in a small way provide some lettuce to contribute to their food boxes and so we want to be able to do that more often again partnering and letting our local farmers know if they have anything available they could offer it and have it go into food boxes. There's many groups that are doing a lot of things. And one of the things I know that's been a challenge is the distribution of all of that food. So Adrian, the struggles to have local food systems work, that comes from decades of ignoring local farming, decades of ignoring local production in favor of commercial production and factory farming, essentially. At Pinnacle Prevention, you've not just partnered with Nina or partnered with Sherilyn, but you've also created a statewide network 
to try to address this issue. And you were doing tons of work before COVID even happened. Talk about the Arizona Food Systems Network. Talk about the work that you were doing before COVID happened and what has transpired since COVID happened and where we're headed. So the Arizona Food System Network is what we affectionately call the Coalition of Coalitions. And this is a statewide effort that brings together all of the regional coalitions to try to make change and leverage our collective resources. Prior to COVID-19, we were in the process of developing a multi-year action plan. And much of that had been informed by data. So really pouring over data and understanding where the gap areas were, what our priorities needed to be. And then COVID-19 hit. And what we found is that most of that data goes right out the window. And we have a whole new system and a whole new world in front of us now. And so this shifted to work with the regional coalitions from across the state to identify what are the most immediate barriers to getting food to the people. First and foremost, feed the people. Food is a fundamental human right. So we need to make sure that we're feeding the people. And that included having funding mechanisms in place, working with the governor's office to get a portion of the COVID relief funding dedicated to the SNAP fruit and vegetable incentives like Double Up Food Bucks, working to make sure that our farmers markets were viewed and seen as essential services and could still operate amid COVID-19. As Nina mentioned, you know, sometimes the markets themselves might be the only place where folks can go and get food, especially in these small and rural communities. And so if they were facing barriers to having to close down or safety issues, we needed to ensure that they could still remain operational. So this meant getting them access to PPE, making sure that they were enacting uniform guidelines across the state to show that they were keeping customers safe and that they were there to meet the immediate need and actually weren't influenced by some of the logistical transportation disruptions that we were seeing at the national level as well too. A key point you guys jumped on, getting food to the people, was the fact that schools closed. Yep. And all kinds of kids who were getting free and reduced lunch were getting nothing. Talk a little bit about that emergency response put together there. Yeah, so COVID really brought out and still continues to bring out the disparities in the system. And there's many children throughout Arizona and across the nation that depend solely on school meals to feed them for breakfast, lunch, and everything in between. So school meals are a vital source of nutrition and just nourishment for children across Arizona. So when schools don't operate in the summertime, there's a program called the Summer Food Service Program. And so when COVID hit and the schools closed down, the schools rapidly had to change their system to operate within this what we would call summer foods model to be able to deliver and still feed kids. And they did this beautifully from drive up, grab and go options to even sending food out on buses and stopping on the normal school bus routes to be able to feed children out there in those rural areas as well too. With that, though, because they are feeding so many, the schools themselves also faced issues with getting access to food because of supply chain disruptions. And trying to determine what this is going to look like in the long term, because that is also incredibly labor intensive, is a little bit worrisome. And schools need more funding to be able to continue to operate and feed the, the children and the families. Okay. Frustrating or exciting? Policy changes that have taken years to take effect. You mentioned Double Up Food Bucks. Mm -hmm. For those who don't know what Double Up Food Bucks is, real quickly, what is Double Up Food Bucks? Double Up Food Bucks offers a dollar-for-dollar dollar match on Arizona-grown fruits and vegetables for any SNAP customer that's buying food with their EBT card. So SNAP, formerly known as food stamps, they spend a dollar at a farmer's market. We give them an extra dollar for Arizona-grown fruits and vegetables. Pinnacle Prevention and its partners mm -hmm. spent years trying to even get a prototype of Double Up Food Bucks to happen. It yeah. finally happened, but with a lot of restrictions. COVID hits, and what happens? Yeah, so we started this pilot. It's taken off successfully in terms of putting more money back into the community and into the pockets of farmers and feeding people good food. That was a one-time funding appropriation and pilot. We were on board this legislative session pre-COVID to have a permanent recurring appropriation that would get put in place. And then the session abruptly ended because of COVID-19. And so now we find ourselves in this position where we were getting ready to expand to having to halt services to say, wait a minute, uh, how are we going to be able to continue to operate this program? Despite that, we have had 
some great funders, Vitalist Health Foundation and others, Mercy Care Plan, that have come to the table and see the value in this program that has allowed us to transition the match limit in Double Up amid COVID-19 to unlimited match. So whereas before folks that were spending their food stamp benefits at the market would be limited to up to $20 a match, now it is unlimited. So if they are shopping now for a larger family and they want to spend $40 at the market, we give them an extra $40 for Arizona-grown fruits and vegetables. So now that this unlimited program is Mm -hmm. actually happening, how do we keep that? How do we make it permanent? What we've seen, some of the positives that have come out of COVID is that legislature, policymakers, people in decision-making authority are now seeing, oh yeah, food is a fundamental human right. And when they see an influx of folks that are now unemployed or have losing their jobs, the first thing that they have poured money to is ensuring that families continue to get fed. And also removing some of the barriers to that as well, to making it easier. So expanding the amount of money they get on their SNAP cards issuing out a special PEBT, which is called the pandemic EBT, which gives the young kids extra dollars to spend as well too. Trying to expand the SNAP online purchasing pilot as well too. So if all of those things happened through a policy change, they need to now remain permanent. The goal is to make it easier for folks to be able to feed themselves. And we've seen now in the system that this are some things that could be done that allow it to be easier for folks. We don't want to change that and go back. This needs to now be the permanent solution to continue to make progress in the right direction. Nina, in Ajo, what's changed? What hasn't? What should change? And how are we going to get there? COVID-19 really has brought the worst out of people, but also the best. And we have been extremely lucky to work with the organizations and individuals working on the forefront of this. Perhaps what has changed and the big change that is coming for us is, first of all, we have always partnered with others in the local food system. That's what we do because together we're strong and especially important for partnering on the reservation as well as in small communities, I think, and continue to cultivate relationships, taking care of each other. I think that should be in the forefront for the future as well. How do we do that? There's many ways to do that. And what needs to change is acknowledging that that's an important part of what we do. So it's not just outcomes of the grant project or how much money is being made or turned around. It is thinking about the well-being of people as well. For AHO and Autonomous Autumn Nation, we learned that the emergency food system in place before did not exist. And another thing that happened was the current AHO food pantry has decided to close. They were in the process of closing before COVID-19 hit, but I do believe the stress of everything just accelerated the process. So we are now rebuilding, doing an emergency food response, rebuilding the emergency food system, and we're reaching out to the partners and community members with provisional needs assessment and trying to build food banking system that first of all, reaches everybody that needs it. And second of all, that is not creating another model of dependency, but trying to really build on the resources and assets and the strength of the community and connecting the food banking, quote unquote, business with other aspects of the local food system. So that's what's next for us down here in Ajo and on Dawn Autumn Nation. And I guess the next big thing statewide for the Arizona Agricultural Training Network and Arizona Agricultural Workforce Development Coalition is thinking about how do we do training in the future. It's more than ever. It's clear that farmers are more important perhaps than ever. It is clear we have to invest into the next generation of farmers, ranchers, and foragers. And when we're thinking about how do we do beginning farmer training programs? How do we do apprenticeships? How do we do larger gatherings, workshops? We're currently in the process of planning the saguaro fruit harvest and the 2020 Arizona Beginning Farmers and Ranchers Forum. And of course, everything has to be delayed, postponed. We're thinking about virtual gatherings. We're thinking about how do we do this work in the future. We know the virus is not going away, so we know that we will have to live with it for, hopefully not, but it could be many years to come. And in this process, we cannot drop raising 
the next generation of farmers and ranchers, as well as supporting those that are already here. Sherilyn, same question to you. What's happened? How have you responded? Where do you go next? Well, some of the things that I've seen on Navajo is families are growing food. You know, they're interested in it. They're seeking it out. And that is a good thing. That's very good because it's an opportunity for people to really learn their own food system (laughs) and figure out how they can get their different kinds of food. And it helps people to appreciate whatever they're buying at the grocery store, that they're looking at it in a different way. So they're taking that time to process that process of growing it. So that's a good thing. I'm very, very appreciative that people are really looking at and taking that time. So that's one thing that I've seen. The other thing is that the farmer's out here really know that they are important and so I want to figure out how do we continue to work with them to get them to be growing at a bigger level is it infrastructure that they're looking for what is that going to look like and it almost seems like how do I bring them along on this journey that we've been on That's one of the things that's happening right now is getting our farmers involved. And in our area, there's a small number of us that are ready to grow in ways that it's going to feed more people. And that's going to be very important. And that also does take a lot of resources and time to learn how to do that. And so we're going to be looking for additional funding sources to get those farmers that kind of knowledge and that infrastructure. Sherilyn, not only have you built your own farm and network of the Green Team farmers, but you've also been working to create gardens slash farms at each chapter house in the Navajo Nation. You showed me one of those chapter house gardens. And how many chapters are there in the Navajo Nation? There's 110 chapters, and that project was actually done with the Navajo Nation's junk food tax. And... My brother and my husband, we were doing workshops there, and my brother continued to take care of that garden there in Tisto. And that's when my husband and I, Mike, we moved forward and started Coffee Pot Farms. When we visited that Tisto chapter house and you showed me that garden, your husband said, that's one down, 109 to go. (laughs) How do you maintain the drive to tackle these very large systemic issues? Mike and I have that conversation all the time. Sometimes you get so frustrated, you just want to break down and cry. But then you know you can't because it's like, dang it, no, I'm going to get stronger. I need to figure this out. How do I do that? So we talk about it. And you know what? It it just comes down to we have to show people how to do that. We have to let people know you can farm like this, you know, even though if you have to go and haul your water, because my grandparents, you know, did it. My paternal grandpa, my Nolly man, he hauled water all the time. And it can be done. We just have to be physically strong enough and mentally strong enough to to not let that work seem so hard. And so that part is just showing people. And so we're on social media, we're showing people, oh, we did this today and we had this problem and this plant didn't make it. But we're trying to show them that process of what it's going to look like. Because I think somebody out there will be like, oh, I can do it. And they can always come back. And we've had people want to do farm tours. And before COVID happened, you know, we were doing them and people were coming out. They were getting ideas of what this looks like. And afterwards, they're still asking questions about, okay, well, how do I go about growing in a greenhouse? Or what is the cost of it? Or where do I go get one? So I really think it has to be shown. You have to be able to see it before you're able to believe that it can happen, I think. This from the woman whose greenhouse is built out of doors. (laughs) Yeah, the sliding doors, right? It's pretty cool. I love it. I love it. All right, you guys ready for true or false time? Yes. All right, each of you gets to decide true or false. Question number one, true or false, this land can support all Arizonans' food needs. True. 
I also agree, true, if the policymakers make sure that that land is accessible. Very good. True or false? Water isn't an insurmountable problem for healthy food production. We just need to be way smarter in how we use it. I think false, personally. I think that we live in a desert climate and region that necessitates us looking at our precious water resources in a new light, in a new way, and especially amid climate change. And, you know, we have our drought contingency plan and and sharing of water resources with our surrounding state neighbors and so many different groups. But with that, I think the beauty that Sherilyn and Nina really showcase is that Our indigenous people have been growing food here in the desert climate with limited water access for hundreds of thousands of years. So if we can follow in their best practices and footsteps, I I think we'll be in a good position. Nina, you agree? I agree. Also false. I, I do think it will take a shift on what people grow, what the expectations are, and what people eat. It will take a shift what the bigger corporations do, and water is everything. Sherilyn? Yep, water is life, so we got to really look at it differently and appreciate it and, you know, understand it a little bit more and respect it more. Third question, true or false? Policy and systems change is truly important. Developing the people who rebuild Arizona's food system is truly important. You can't have one without the other. Absolutely true. I think policies are driven by the people and ultimately the best policies are driven by the community members themselves. So that couldn't be more at the heart of the work that we do. Sherilyn? That's true. That is very true because somebody has to do the work. Anybody that shows up that wants to work, you want to be able to give them that space and that time because they're there to show you something. Nina, you agree? True, absolutely. And let's not forget that at the end of the day, the law is made for people. It's, it is written on paper, but it is people that implement that daily. So I do think with the policy change, we should think of it as system thought process change as well. And uh, it's important we educate those who are also then behind to implement it on a daily basis And we are looking into shifting a big paradigm here. Very good. All right. Last question. Close your eyes if they aren't already closed. Dream of your ideal food world five years from now. Sherilyn, what does it look like? I see coffee pot farms growing on two acres. And we have water. We have an online store. And we have a food truck. And we're partnering with several local farmers and they're in that same process of going through and doing what we did in their communities. Nina, keep your eyes closed. Dream big. What's it look like in five years? So for AHO Center for Sustainable Agriculture, we see installing a new campus. We see working on the farmer's market here in AHO and on the reservation. I see people coming to the farmer's markets. I see farmers growing food. I see that exchange happening over food. I see elders getting traditional foods and their faces lightening up. And I see people getting healthier. I see people getting leaner. I see kids growing food. I see high school students applying for internship jobs. I see apprentices working hard, working the land. And I see communities working together to thrive because we are in this together. We can either thrive together or we will go down together. Adrian, In five years, I want to see an Arizona food system that is local and just and connected where we appreciate the cultural aspect of, of our food system and who we are and all the different elements that play into it. And our local farmers and producers feel supported and connected in that the, we have an investment in the system from many different partners and players, federal, state funding, different groups, that is mitigating some of the harmful consequences that we've seen that's resulted in, in what we see today. Thank you, Sherilyn. Thank you, Nina. And thank you, Adrian. Not just for your time in visiting with us today, but for your tireless and relentless pursuit of your visions for high-functioning, local, and equitable food systems that not only bring us health, 
but bring us community and joy. Here at The Spark, we too see people celebrating strengths, growing food, and cultivating community well-being. It's what everyone can aspire to, but it isn't always what our policies and systems produce. In order to see the change, those policies, systems, and environments will need to be changed. All right, we're going to say this once again in light of the consistent increase in new Arizona COVID-19 cases. If we want Arizona to be well clinically, socially, and economically, there's one thing we can all choose to do. Mask up, AZ. Cloth masks really do work. Evidence of this grows daily. We can protect each other from community spread. My mask protects you. Your mask protects me. Hashtag mask up AZ. Of course, our COVID-19 roundtable will return next week with all the latest developments on the agenda to discuss. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. Our affordable housing episode from a few weeks ago has been a big hit, and it is a timely subject given recent actions by the city of Phoenix and other leaders. Or our episode from two weeks ago is a pre-COVID recording focused on the art and practice of storytelling. And there is so much more to explore related to community health and well-being in our other episodes too, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. And don't forget, The Vitalist Spark is indeed now available on Spotify, and you can subscribe to be notified of new episodes there too. In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overdrive, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.